0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.
1: While Wells Fargo tries to fix the mess of the faked accounts it started to produce... CEO John Stumpf testified before the Senate Banking Committee this week about the issues and was beaten down by legislators. The entire process and his leadership were called into question. Joining us to discuss the latest on this, Peter Conti Brown, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. He's joining us here in the studio. On the phone with us, Lisa Cook, associate professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. P- Lisa, great to have you on the phone with us.
2: It's my pleasure again.
1: Thank you, Peter. Great to see you. Glad to Thank be back. You. And again, we want to get your comments on Wells Fargo, especially if you are a customer of the bank. What has all this done to your belief in Wells Fargo? The number to give us a call and give us your comments is 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. Lisa, how did you grade John Stumpf in front of Congress the other day?
2: Um, D
1: minus. <laughs> Wait a minute. You didn't want to go all the way to the That's F? That's
2: right. That's right. That's right. Why so? Um, just a little bit for effort. There's not much that he could could say or or do. Um, I mean, he seemed to suggest that the board was responsible and that the board still had faith in him. But uh, but yeah, I'm being facetious with a D minus. I mean, it, it, there's not much worse that he, he could have done. Um, he seemed to be uh, completely unsympathetic, he seemed to be unaware, and he certainly seemed to be passing the buck. So uh, one one thing that I think was most disturbing that came out was uh, during the Senate uh, hearings, the uh, congressional hearings yesterday, was that he profited tremendously during the period when uh, the uh, scheme was happening. And then this the scheme and I'm using that as a generic term I don't mean to suggest right. um anything uh, derogatory but while while the scheme was in place uh the goal was for for individuals to have eight accounts eight accounts I mean it's just it it it, it is mind blowing yeah. uh, no one needs uh eight accounts and certainly your credit score goes down with each additional account you have so I don't I don't understand the optimization problem um, where eight accounts were being uh, pitched to individuals who were customers at Wells Fargo.
0: Peter, you want
1: to throw an F out there
0: or I, I agree with Lisa. I don't think quite an F and here's why. I mean his opening statement, he's got all of the expressions of regret and apology and failure and accountability, etc. So uh, so he could have come in and said, Look, the American people are stupid and terrible at math. Uh, 5,000 employees seems large, but we're a juggernaut of 250,000, blah, blah, blah. So he didn't do that initially. Yeah. Right. But then the rest of his testimony was essentially that. Right. So if I were were a PR advisor to John Stumpf, I would have said, you go in there and you say that absolutely everything is on the table, including your own head, but that you are continuing to investigate it. Yeah applaud the Mm -hmm. CFPB, applaud the city attorney's office, applaud the U.S. attorney's Mm -hmm. office, and say that no one is taking this more seriously and that you're going to root out this cancer wherever it may go, and if it extends to the C-suite, said that I will resign.
1: Right. Why is it then you would have a company advise the CEO to take the tact that John Stumpf did? Because seemingly that just infuriated... I mean Elizabeth Warren, I oh, think, yeah. was she, ready ready to jump over the uh, over the bench and 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 kind of wring her her hands around the neck of, of John Stumpf. That's how that's yeah. how that's how bad she got y ya- the other
0: day. Oh yeah, but in, but in substance, I mean, it was a very bipartisan attack uh, on, right. uh, on on Stumpf. You know, uh, when Senator Shelby is saying this is a, a colossal failure, uh, you've let down the American people. That's what's problematic. Here's what here's what annoyed me the most about Stumpf's testimony, and that is. That he's he's completely prejudged it before the investigation is, and he keeps on leaning on this idea that the board is investigating, uh, including questions about clawbacks of of compensation. Yeah. he's pre- he's uh, recused himself from those discussions. But then he has said, but it certainly wasn't a cultural problem. They didn't get right. that from us. This is just <laughs> these are just rogue bank tellers. Yeah, You're
1: right. Well, and then you have the uh, the other issue, Lisa, uh, of the the uh, woman that was basically running, setting up this operation, and the fact that she was not fired, and the fact that they are letting her retire, with air quotes around it, and she, I guess she's walking away with close to what nineteen million dollars. No, uh, so much more than that. Uh, uh, well, right, exactly. Sure. But it's yeah. some crazy number that that she's walking out the door with.
2: Right. Right. So you know, all of this is suspect. Out. This is this is it, it, it. Just it just smells. It just stinks. So first, I would I would completely agree with uh, Peter. Um, the the suggestion that this isn't a cultural problem is um, is is almost it, is suspicious. This is two percent of the workforce. Uh, Fifty three hundred employees fired. Um, I mean, two percent of the workforce is not rogue employees. You know, point uh, yeah. zero one percent of the workforce <laughs> is rogue employees, and not to mention on um, on a couple of websites, I certainly saw a number of uh, whistleblowers who came forward and you know reported this, and they were fired, right? So, so yeah. the claim was that yeah. they were being embraced, um, and it seems as though they were they were being fired. So the part about this um, this manager being uh being or being allowed to retire uh stinks for so many reasons you know, for some reason like it, you know it, it, this person isn't senior enough is it just 19 uh million dollars she's the only one who's going to go um you know if a person at that level this this feels like the chris christie um issue and um the the line closures um um I think it was a George Washington Bridge. Yeah.
3: Right. You know, so, yep.
2: um, no knowledge of what was going on at the top. And I think um, there had to be, for a person that senior to be involved, there had to be. And for 5,300 employees at least to be involved. Yeah. Um, and 1.5 million bank accounts to be yeah. involved and 565,000 credit cards. I just don't think that this is where the buck stops. Yeah. And being allowed to retire certainly doesn't suggest accountability or responsibility at uh, the highest levels of management.
1: You're, you're correct, and, and the number she, uh, Carrie Tolstead, was going to walk away with is 125 million dollars, yeah. a little bit more than that. Nine, a than one
2: order of magnitude higher. It, yeah, but a it, nine figures. All of it so. seems. Some. All of this seems artificial in some way, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so so it seems like we're. This is a distraction from. Uh, what seems to be a a, a cultural problem, and, yeah. and like Peter said, I I was really um, <laughs> annoyed too, uh, suspicious too of him prejudging the investigation that's going on. Let the process work itself out. Yeah. The other thing that annoyed me too was that there was this tone deafness, almost yeah. as the uh, the GM. And Chrysler uh, CEOs showed up during the height of the recession, <laughs> yeah. you know, in their private jets. as you know, <laughs> completely tone deaf and completely unaware of the kind of suffering of the rest of the American people. People in the United States want to see CEOs' heads roll from this banking and financial crisis that deepened the economic crisis. And, and it's almost as if this they were completely unaware of this, both the team, the PR team, and uh, John Stump.
1: Your yeah. comments are welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you're a Wells Fargo customer or were at some point. Your comments are welcome. 844-942-7866.
0: Yeah, so I really agree with everything Lisa is saying. And uh, I would add uh, three other curiosities. One is that Tolstead's retirement was not simply that she was allowed to retire, that she was like, you know what, this is about to hit the fan, I need to retire. Yeah. It's that she was counseled out. She said, you know, we are now going in a different direction and you are not part of that direction. She's only in her mid-50s. Yeah. And at that point, what we don't know is, is that different direction exactly on cross-selling? Is it exactly on this question of whether there's going to be eight accounts per... Customer, we don't know, but we do know that as senior management had made the de- decision that she was no longer a part of their team, she was allowed to retire. It seems to me precisely to avoid clawback of her compensation Absolutely, her nine-figure yeah. co- compensation. So that's that's incredibly suspicious. Uh, to use Lisa's great word, it, I, I'm, suspicions definitely are flying. The other it, question:
1: It almost makes you think that that somehow, some way, the board met with her and she knows how far up this up the ladder this goes yep. and they're saying okay listen we're going to let you retire, we're going to let you have your compensation, mm-hmm. and you just have a, kind of a, a moratorium on saying anything, mm-hmm. you right. know,
0: for, for a long period of time. Exactly, including, I mean, she's still, she's still being compensated as an active and, employee right. of, and of and Wells she, Fargo through it, the end of this year. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, she finishes out the year, yeah. too.
0: So so here's the other thing, is that while this is uh, ripping across the headlines and, in the, and the Senate Banking Committee, The Wall Street Journal is reporting on this kind of aggressive cross-selling that Wells Fargo has been doing for 18 months, right? So. Yeah. The idea that this summer, when she's counseled out, I mean, the the discussions of the CFPB are, are ongoing. People know exactly what's going on. I mean, the timing here is incredibly suspect. Here's the other issue, though. We keep on talking about this being less than two percent, although John Stumpf kept on saying it was one percent, which raises the question of, you know, what what how, how, what's his denominator here? What's right, what's he thinking right. about this? Um, the the problem, though, is that not all two hundred and twenty five thousand or whatever the number is of employees are personal bankers. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The, the, to yeah. get apples to apples, to really get the denominator here, we need to know what number of people is engaged in the business of cross-selling. Yeah. Right. And then what number of people faked these 2 million accounts? And also look at the pattern of geographic distribution. And this is the third thing that I think is incredibly suspect. When this is going on in Southern California and L.A. and the branches, right, Uh rather than investigating how it could be that one branch is – that these branches are such outliers compared to the rest of the the company, they start celebrating it and sending people to uh, learn from them. (laughs) Not investigators to make sure that it's honest, but other bankers within the organization to say, okay, Let's uh, let's learn, you know, their management style. And of course, what are they going to say? They're not going to say, "Oh, it's all a fraud. We're yeah. faking it all." They're saying instead, "Oh no, we got You know, we've got this kind of charisma. This is the way we do it, and whatever other uh, kinds of uh, kinds of things they would talk about." So, so the idea that Wells Fargo all the way up was just completely taken by surprise, and as Stump says, it in the testimony, I don't know where they got this. This isn't our culture. I, I, it just does not pass the smell test.
1: Well, Lisa, wow. this continues something that we've mentioned with you and, and Peter before, and it bears repeating: is the fact that you know we are, you know, closing in on a, a decade out from the recession and the banking crisis, and we still have these types of activities going on. We thought a lot of the regulation that was put into place in the wake of the recession was going to eliminate stuff like this, and. and I'm sure it has on some degree, but again, when you have a case like this, you just have to kind of go back and say, "Well, what's going on here?"
2: Well, I, I, again, as I as I uh, mentioned last time, um, overdraft fees have become such. Um, it seems well, okay, they've become crack for the uh financial uh industry this yeah. is uh eleven billion dollars in overdraft fees in uh twenty fifteen. This is eight percent of total profit. They're very reliant on fees for their profit function. And this um, this is straight from the c f p p uh P report. And this is two thirds of the revenue that comes from consumer bank accounts. Wow. This is overdraft fees. So so uh, you know, there's room for other fees, clearly. Uh, so but they came with bank accounts so I'm, I'm just suggesting that not only is it cultural with respect to Wells Fargo, it seems to be cultural with respect to the um, the the commercial banking industry yeah. so so you know the the question is how the profit function uh, might change if these uh, if these types of uh, practices were eliminated um, if overdraft. you know, i mean Overdraft fees are now uh, just such a critical part of it. it just uh, it doesn't. Uh, I'm not sure how they could be gotten rid of, but I think that the profit function is what has to be called into question this far out from the uh, recession, just as you mentioned.
1: 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in and ask a question, our guest Peter Condy Brown of the Wharton School joining us here in the studio. Lisa Cook of Michigan State University joining us on the phone. We're talking about the Wells Fargo mess that is going on. CEO John Stump testifying in front of uh, the Senate Banking Committee earlier this week. If you're a Wells Fargo customer or... Just in general, you don't have to necessarily be, what's your reaction to all of this? And especially if you're a Wells Fargo customer, does it change your your faith in the company? 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. One of the other topics, Peter, that was brought up uh, in, the, in the committee meeting uh, dealt with credit scores and the impact that potentially there could have been because of all of this on the credit scores of all of the people that were affected by sure. this.
0: I mean, so, so the FICO credit score is definitely sensitive to the number of uh, accounts, especially in the last two-year period, that are opened up. Um, it's going to be marginal. I mean, this isn't going to be raining devastation on everyone, but the thing, that's just the point of a marginal change. Yeah. Those people who are at the cusp, right, between excellent and good, are going to see and, and say they refinanced or bought a house during this time or got a car loan or whatever it is, they're going to be spending not just the $10 or $20 fees, but thousands upon thousands of dollars, right? Now, this isn't this isn't everybody, again. This is going to be people on the margin, but that's exactly the point, is that there was real harm done to these people, Um through through the manipulation of credit scores yeah uh, already a, a kind of questionable exercise that we've delegated to the to uh, you know kind of a private governance system already but the fact that fraud would go undetected yeah and then and then uh, at this point will it go uncorrected uh, I, I actually don't know the answer to that
1: Lisa I mean that that seemingly is maybe the bigger question here is that with this type of size fraud committed again we get back to you know there are penalties that are paid, but there is no, uh, there's nobody going to jail over this.
2: There's, there's no one going to jail, and uh, again, the the whoever was helping um, the CEO prepare for this uh, testimony yesterday uh, just missed this completely. This is a deeply and widely held sentiment. Some would argue that these were uh, these fueled the uh, campaigns of uh, a number of uh, presidential uh, candidates, that that there has not been a reckoning yeah. for those at the top, those uh, CEOs who uh, allowed these practices, these uh, not these particular practices, but similar practices, to run amok and the financial system. And the man on the street is the person who has to pay for it. Yeah. So I, I really think that this is this is um, a, a missed uh, opportunity, like Peter said, to to even explain more, uh, to take a bit more responsibility. That's what people are looking for, and they're threatening to move their accounts, just like the caller who called into your show the last time we were on. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I think that that we should take this opportunity to reflect on two different dynamics within the banking industry. They're incredibly important. Number one is, did the CFPB, its very existence, number one, number two, its approach to this, was it a good thing or was it not enough? Because there is this sense, as you mentioned, Dan. Why did this happen at all? I thought we created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to eliminate this kind of thing. I think that that, that's an appropriate question. I think the harder and, and, and more important question is, What's the counterfactual? Would this have continued to go on? Would it sure. have spread? Oh yeah. What's the role of the bureau? And I think that there's going to be um, more more research coming out and and more uh, journalism coming out to explain this. Uh, I, I'm guardedly optimistic that the CFUV's presence here facilitated rather than prevented uh, facilitated settlement and discovery as as opposed to uh, prevented it.
1: Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number. We're talking about Wells Fargo. Do you still have faith in them? 844-942-7866. You bring up a good point, Peter, in the fact that if there was not the CFPB and this had continued, you know, who's to say this wouldn't have become an industry-wide issue, sure. you know, not just Wells Fargo, and it may very well be leaking sure. into other sure. other, bankings, right. yeah. other banking institutions that just hasn't been kind of brought to the to, to the top of the water at this point. Well,
0: it right. reassures me about, I mean, the nature of bank supervision, I'm, I'm writing a book about the history of bank supervision right now with a co-author, uh, Sean Venata at Princeton. And, and as we're writing this book, what's fascinating is that the nature of bank supervision changes generationally in really important ways. Um, But the Dodd-Frank revolution in bank supervision is moving so much towards systemic risk regulation – or systemic risk and so much toward uh, quantitative models. These are the stress tests and living wills, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What this example shows us is that there's something about uh, shoe-leather bank supervision of individual institutions to get down and weasel into information where real humans, bank tellers, are making – real decisions about other humans, their customers, yeah. that simply will not show up if you're, if you're modeling uh, on the level of stress tests or living wills or something like that. So this right. tells me that there is a still very important role for bank supervision that is so finely tuned. And it's nearly impossible for me to imagine in the pre-CFPB era, the Fed, who would have had primary responsibility over these kinds of issues uh putting this kind of uh putting this kind of issue front and center. Uh, right to right. the extent.
2: And I I, yeah. and I I completely agree. And I think the made Madoff case uh made us uh or reminded us that um, some of the most egregious uh problems uh are not necessarily the ones that depend on the most sophisticated quant models. Yep. I, I mean, that was that was old-school Ponzi scheme. Yeah. You know, yeah. straight, straight, straight out of the 1920s or like the early days of the post-Soviet Union, you know, it, it, I think the original for this um, minute um, but extremely important uh, bank and financial institution regulation going forward.
0: The other question that this raises, and it's an appropriate one, and I think that people on the right are going to be more sympathetic to this question, and, and uh, it's worthy of discussion, is, okay, fine, Wells Fargo went way too far, right? Yeah. But how do you structure incentives for your employees? Because if there are no incentives at all, everybody's on a salary, it doesn't matter. I mean, they are... Be- Wells Fargo wants to grow. They want to take business away from their, and it's their not competitors, right. and you're going to have people who show up to work and are not very effective employees. So how do you how do you reward high performers? Uh, and that's a really, I mean, as basic a question as it is, right. basic question of how what are ince- what are appropriate incentives in the banking industry, especially in consumer banking. We don't really have a good handle on this. Right. Wells Fargo did not provide the correct solution. Having, eight, you know, this idea eight is great. I completely agree with Lisa. Right. Cartoonishly ridiculous. Name right. eight different banking services that right. you need. You're yeah. exhausted after three or four. Savings, checking, mortgage, uh, credit card, I guess. You need a broker at Wells Fargo. I mean, right. what right. what other things are they selling? So. Right. But
1: it, it does, Lisa, I guess, and we mentioned this before, and uh, hang on, phone calls, we've got a, a couple that we're going to get to in a second. It kind of goes back to uh, something we mentioned the last time of this idea in business in general of trying to bring everything that you could potentially want under one umbrella, which right. doesn't work all the time.
2: Right. No, that's right. And um, in, included in that incentive system, in order for any incentive system to work, whether it's in banking or any other realm. The Part of the moral hazard problem is that you've got to monitor these folks. So you put in place an in incentive system, you, you have to ask at some point, is it working, and there's some indication that the uh management thought it was working because um teams were sent down to Southern California to observe yeah so i mean uh the the incident structure is one thing, but certainly the, the monitoring it just seems like yeah. there's there was well it, the claim seems to be that there was no monitoring right. that that uh senior management was unaware. But that's really hard to believe.
1: All right, let's get to the phones. A couple of callers on the line. Let's start with Diana in Los Angeles, right there in the midst of it. Diana, go ahead.
2: No, my question is, yesterday there was an article about several employees uh, called the ethics hotline, and they were ignored. And so the question is, you know, is Wells Fargo also going to be held responsible for the fact that they've got an ethics hotline? You've got whistleblowers in the company. They're saying, hey, wait a minute, this is an issue. But yet, Wells Fargo is basically saying, you know what, we're going to ignore the fact that you're raising an issue. And, oh, by the way, we're going to fire you. Yeah. Lisa? And and that, I think, I mean, you put your, your finger on it again. It is just astonishing the number of people. I mean, I was just. I think it the CNN uh, Money website, and I mean, there's just a litany of people who seem to have reported this, and no note was taken. These people were fired. So, so, and in fact, somebody contacted me after our last uh, show together. <laughs> I got exactly the and same thing. Same thing. Yep. So, so, you know, they've got a much bigger problem, I think, on their hands. Yep. So, so, um, I think the caller is right to bring up. Uh, this, this hotline issue, and yeah. somebody, somebody external really needs to come and uh, help them out with, with this. If, if this is what is happening to those who think that uh, some sort of ethics and possibly legal uh, rules are being broken.
1: Yeah. Diana, thanks very much for the call. We go to Las Vegas. Dwayne. Dwayne, go ahead.
2: Yes, good morning, guys. My question is, do we think uh, in, in today's society it would be uh, equally as beneficial to benefit representatives for uh, customer service and proper uh, ethics versus only incentivizing reps for performance. Because when you uh, incentivize reps based on performance, you get these type uh, type of um, actions that we've seen in the real estate agencies, um, we've seen in the insurance. So it it happens to repeat over and over. So when do we look at the system and say we have to figure out a better way to fix this systemic issue that continuously happens in our society?
0: Uh, Dwayne, that's a really great point, and we've got examples of this. So Amazon.com, I'm not intimately familiar with how they compensate their customer service uh, representatives, but anytime you interact with Amazon through you know, an email complaint or something, then you immediately are invited to evaluate how well they did for you. Right. right? Are you satisfied with this performance? Rate it, and if you're you have the time, I don't often take the time, but you you can answer a lot of questions just oh, about yeah. that. Yeah. And Amazon has lost so much money to my complaints over the years, where I've said, "Look, this came and it was a little bit broken, or this came and it was not a great purchase, whatever." Right? So that customer service model is very very different now. Amazon doesn't turn hasn't turned the annual profits that have popped the eyeballs of bankers at Wells Fargo. Um, but it's a it's a different model, and it's certainly one that could be pursued, and it's one that we could raise the question, how profitable do we want the banks anyway, if they're providing such a basic public utility type service of just parking your money uh, uh, for uh, in, in a way that we might think of maybe as an electricity company or gas company, as opposed right. to a, a, a profit center.
2: Right, right, right. And providing the public good of providing information to the rest of the economy yeah. about uh, yeah. good and, and the best investments. But, Dwayne, I have a suggestion uh, for you. You bring up an excellent point, and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't typically plug other people's uh, books, but uh, there's a book, Fishing for Fools, by my friend uh, George Akerlof and co-author Robert Schiller, about how these kinds of schemes show up over time. So you're right, it's not just. The banking industry, and it's not just this time. These schemes show up yep. um, in so many different places, and we have to be aware. So the the question about the role of the CFPB is a is a really good one. And um, and my sense is that we can't um, prevent them, but we can certainly have our eyes uh, open. And I think that's what the CFPB really has to do is sort of be the one sleeping with uh, one eye open in case these problems emerge.
1: Dwayne, thanks very much for the call. Lisa, I guess that's it. going back to your point you were just making, that's part of the reason why we're, we're talking about Wells Fargo, but also we've been talking about the fact that the Milan CEO is in front of a yeah. congressional committee right. to talk about the EpiPen. Yeah.
2: Right, right, right. I mean, the, the question that Peter raised is one that economists often raise. How profitable does x need to be. So right. so we have this concept of uh extra normal profits and this is uh you know normal profits every uh firm is entitled to but extra normal profits or or um sort of extraction uh from from individuals uh, rent seeking certainly is, is out of bounds, and that is not protecting the uh, consumers. So the question is, how profitable does the EpiPen, the EpiPen have to be? How profitable yeah. do <laughs> banks have to be? Yep. They certainly need to be uh, watched much more closely, especially because the EpiPen has become almost like a public good because it's mm-hmm. been required in so many um, schools and in school districts. So, so, yeah, I think there has to be a lot more monitoring of uh, these kinds of schemes, these kinds of situations.
1: Great to have you both again on the show. Thank you, uh, Lisa, for joining us on the phone. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Great to see you again. Always Thanks so a very pleasure. much for coming in.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.